Hey there, KGF family. The summer is finally here. If the heat didn't make it obvious, maybe uh, classes ending finally for all students in the district uh, will finally do that. I mean, more than that even, more than summer finally being here, COVID restrictions on places of worship have been lifted. There is so much to thank God for this morning, but still so much to pray for, to discern, and to look forward to as well. Uh, for many people, the move to phase three and the loosening of restrictions uh, is like a dream come true. I know that my daughter uh, is already gonna have her first sleepover, but for others, reconnecting with their wider social circles is still gonna prove difficult. Uh, I imagine that everyone will be navigating some level of social anxiety, whether you've had it before or not, in the next few days and weeks. Uh, some of you might be fine, and that's great, but for others, things might prove tricky. So this morning, what I want to do before we start into our message is uh, take a moment to pause, to pray, to thank God for his many blessings, uh, to continue to ask for grace and mercy, um, especially as we discern how to minister to others and receive ministry as well. So let's take some time right now to pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful uh, to be experiencing the light at the end of the tunnel, not just being told it's coming. Father, thank you for how you have walked with many of us. At the same time, God, we recognize that for many people, this has been a very difficult journey um, and is still going to be difficult. And so, Father, we ask for your wisdom and how we as a church family um, can come alongside and help, how we can help people in our community, how we can help people in our own church family. Father, would you give us patience and wisdom and grace with each other as coming out of this is going to happen at different speeds and at a different pace for everyone. God, give us understanding. And Father, most of all, let us uh, show and share your love um, and be slow to judge um, and quick to show grace. God, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you, we pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning, with the start of summer, we are going to be using Revelation 3.20 as a guide for our preaching and teaching. Now, Marissa has just read this passage for us, but if we're going to memorize it together, it won't hurt to hear it again. So, Revelation 3, verse 20. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. It's a beautiful picture of Jesus' availability for us, his desire to come to us and to share our life with us. And it's the us part of, our, of this verse that we actually want to use as a doorway for reflection going into the summer. Jesus says that he stands at the door and he knocks. So whose door is this? Well, it's my door, it's your door, it's anyone's and everyone's door. Of course, as much as we're all alike, we're also different. We have different burdens that we bear. We have different struggles, different histories, different responsibilities. So this summer, we're gonna try and look at the anyone's behind the door by looking at different stories in scripture. And we're gonna pay attention to what Jesus and what the gospel has for that person. Jesus' posture at the door is to knock, to speak, and to eat with us. Ours is to hear, to open, and to eat with him. But how do we do that, and what can that look like? 
Well, this morning, we are going to look at the story of Adam and Eve and the serpent in Genesis 3. And the anyone behind the door that I want to focus on today is anyone who feels impatient and alienated. Now, those two things might not feel like they're connected right off the bat, but they are. How many of us today, when someone asks how we're doing, answer, oh, busy? Even during the pandemic, people I spoke to would give me that answer. I've given that answer. Our being busy doing things is almost like a, a, badge of, a badge of honor. The fact is, the pace of life has sped up. As technology advances and innovation increases, so too does the pace of our lives. And that leaves us kind of scrambling to keep up. And being busy means just that. We're keeping up. But despite all our innovations, or perhaps, perhaps because of them, we're also more alienated from one another than ever before. You only have to look at uh, social media and how the internet has fed into that for all the good that it's also done. But the answer isn't simply to slow down or to hop off social media. That can be helpful, for sure, but it can also lead to feelings of guilt, the feeling of missing out, feeling old-fashioned or out of step with the world around us. And so we easily get lured back into the race of trying to keep up. Now, some may just want to throw in the towel and disengage entirely, but this too leads to a continued feelings of emptiness, depression, and alienation. Disengaging actually is the temptation that I get drawn into all the time. I'm not somebody, when the pace of life speeds up, I speed up with it, for the most part. Um, I generally just want to quit. I want to back out, and usually it's with this. I'll just sit down and distract myself and disengage. But disengaging or speeding up both end up being substitutes for living against an entirely different measure. That is, stepping into our role as God, in God's creation as stewards and image bearers being raised up in wisdom and holiness by him. Now, what does that mean? Maybe kids, you're listening, you're like, what is Pastor Levi talking about? What does that mean to be a steward? Well, to be a steward is kind of like to be somebody who is looking after or managing or keeping something for somebody above them. Now, when God made us in his image, what he did is he made us to look like him and act like him in creation, just like God cares for us and loves us, we're to care for each other and love each other. Just like God created everything and cares for it, we're called to tend it and care for it as well. That's what it means to be a steward or an image bearer in creation. Now, our problem with stepping into this is often, once again, time. Our culture values speed and efficiency. So the idea of a long obedience in the same direction seems kind of like nonsense in today's day and age. Change and innovation are king. We need new plans, new programs, new approaches. But the idea that through innovation or increasing our pace of life and our overall busyness that we can find fulfillment is a reality that is and always has been out of our reach. Trying to forge this kind of path ends up being destructive to ourselves and to others. So why do we do it? Why do we buy into these ways of life? I think it's because we are an impatient and alienated people. 
Okay, so what does this have to do with Genesis 3? Well, let's start by reviewing what has happened so far in the story of Genesis, Genesis 1 and 2. And actually, let's do this from the perspective of somebody who's never read this story before, okay? So creation has been accomplished by God and it's been named good. Not perfect, mind you. We often make this mistake. We often make the mistake of thinking that Eden is some sort of utopia. But that's not what the story says. It's certainly idyllic. It's called good. But the fact that Adam is called to work the land for the plants to grow in Genesis chapter 2, the command to be fruitful and multiply, stewarding God's creation along the way, all of this implies a sense of direction. There is a purpose to creation. It's to mature and be perfected as it unfolds. The mention of a tree of life and a tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the middle of the garden also suggests a sense of direction, but I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself here. The first-time reader arriving at Genesis 3 will be thinking, okay, but I'm not in the garden now, and things are certainly not always idyllic. We've advanced, yes, but advancement doesn't always mean progress. And what about those trees in the middle of the garden? Well, let's see. Follow along with me as I read Genesis 3, 1 to 8. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. Now in Hebrew, the word crafty can be translated as either crafty or prudent or even sensible, depending on the context. So is this a creature that possesses a virtue that the man and woman should cultivate or a vice that they should avoid? They'll have to make that judgment for themselves. Let's see what happens. The serpent said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, this isn't exactly what God said if you look back in chapter 2. He simply said to avoid the tree, uh, avoid um, eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I'm beginning to suspect that this creature might be driven more by vice than by virtue. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you'll die. Which also isn't exactly what God said either. I'm beginning to think that people weren't really paying attention when God was talking here. You'll certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. You will be like God. God. See, the serpent is offering the promise of wisdom to be the center of deciding what constitutes good and evil, order and disorder. For people created to be image bearers, the opportunity to be the image itself, not simply a reflection, but to be in the driver's seat, that is almost too good an opportunity to pass up, right? Well, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, I don't really like where this is heading, she took some and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and didn't think at any point to intervene, I might add. And he ate it. And then they died just like God said. No, that's not actually, that's not actually what happens. which is interesting. God had said they would die, so has God been caught out in a lie here? He said they would die, and they haven't. Well, let's wait and see. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, 
and they realized that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. So the wisdom that they gain here is problematic because it finds its center in them and not in God in whose image they're made. They have created the first step of separation and alienation where before they were naked but felt no shame, now they begin to hide themselves from one another. Man and woman whom God made to be in relationship, made to become one flesh, are now covering that flesh and hiding it from the other person. And not only that, the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They're hiding themselves from God as well. This leads in verses 9 to 13 to a conversation where blame is shifted from person to person and from creature to creature, and even God himself is held to blame. The woman you put me here with, she gave me the fruit, the man says. And the woman blames the serpent, recognizing that she's been deceived. And humanity's relation itself, uh, relationship with creation itself begins to be disrupted here. As we read the consequences of their folly in the verses that follow, verses 14 and on, uh, we recognize that man and woman will experience struggle and pain as creation seems to work against them and their purposes. And the relationships within their family will be disrupted as well with one son resenting another, leading Cain to kill his brother Abel and set off a spiral of death that will seem to have no end. So did God lie? I don't think so. Now, some people wonder why the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is in the garden at all if eating from it is so calamitous and destructive. But if we remember that creation has a sense of direction built into it, then I don't think God intended to withhold the fruit from them forever. As they grew in relationship with him and with one another, as they matured, the tree's existence suggests that God would let them eat from it eventually. The issue here is not simply that the man and the woman ate from a tree they weren't supposed to, but that they were impatient. They ate from it out of turn without respecting God or waiting on his instruction as he raised them up to be mature stewards of creation, reigning with him. If humans are to work alongside God uh, as, as uh, stewards and image bearers, extending his order and serving his purposes, then we need to attain wisdom. But it was supposed to be a gift and a byproduct of their relationship with God. What Adam and Eve did was buy into the idea that by being the ones who called the shots, who determined what was good and evil and how best to live in the world, they would be better off. And just as wisdom would have been theirs, had they waited patiently and lived according to God's plans, so too would eternal life. Let's read verse 22. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. See, the man and the woman are a wreck. 
Having been impatient with God's timing and his process, they attempted a shortcut to wisdom that has and will result in layers of alienation, separation, pain, and even death. And so in their wretched state, God holds eternal life from them for their own sake. He doesn't want them to be stuck in this place, in this state forever as they are. Just as God had planned to feed them from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, so too was he going to feed them from the tree of life eventually as well. But not now, not yet. The situation has to be remedied first. And so humanity advances, which is not the same as progress, remember, and time moves on with God exercising extraordinary patience and mercy in the face of our sin until one day, with the birth of a child whose life and death and resurrection will change the world, there comes a knock at our door. Genesis 3 is the origin story of our impatience and alienation. We still make the same mistakes today. Even those of us who have given our lives to Jesus Christ still get drawn in by the siren song of doing things our own way forgetting what the end result is destined to be. Instead of God revealed in Christ being our ultimate orientation, we have allowed keeping pace with the speed of life around us to reshape how we live in the world. One of my teachers would always say that since we are made in the image of God, when we take our eyes off of him, we also take our eyes off one another as well. And we begin to allow ourselves to hurt or take advantage of one another in ways that we wouldn't allow otherwise. We've been hearing the last few weeks how the church hasn't escaped the consequences of this either, in our complicity in what took place against the indigenous peoples of this land. In one way or another, likely many ways, the church became impatient with God's way and opted to forge a path based on their own wisdom and the wisdom of the state, and people suffered and died for it. Do we really think that the end result of following our own wisdom rather than the wisdom of God will bear any different fruit in our own personal lives and stories? This kind of situation that came out of the garden must be remedied. And scripture tells us, and our own hearts do as well, that Jesus Christ is that remedy. Christ, who Paul calls the wisdom of God in 1 Corinthians, there's that first tree, is given to us. Wisdom has been given to us in Christ. Jesus is obedient to God's will and does what they, Adam and Eve, could not do and what we cannot do still on our own. And because of this, Jesus achieves what they could not. He achieves, he is granted eternal life in his resurrection. There's that second tree. And mercy of all mercies, he does not do this for himself, but for our sake, sharing his inheritance with us that we might live with him. To go back to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15, because since death came through one man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. 
God has fed us from the first tree, giving us wisdom. And he holds the fruit of the second tree out for us as well as we follow Jesus. Now, who is this Jesus? Well, he is God among us. He is a minister of grace and mercy and love. Where we are impatient, he is patient. Where we are alienated, he brings wholeness. And the way he calls us to do this, to, to life and, oh, and sorry, I got caught up there. He also calls us to a new way, to life in the spirit. And this way brings wholeness. Christ has saved us, reconciled us with God so that we may get on with the business of doing the good works that God has created beforehand for us to do. That's Ephesians. In Jesus, the wisdom of God, God has finally extended his invitation to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And if we want to eat of the tree of life too, we must step boldly into what God has saved us for, ministry in and stewardship of his creation. Ministry and the good fruit it bears, fruit of the spirit, is the purpose and direction God has baked into creation, so to speak. So when Jesus knocks at our door, he is not only wanting to end our separation from him, but to end our separation from each other as well by calling us to be ministers to one another and for one another's sake. Now, the wisdom of our day would suggest that you likely don't have time to step out into ministry. But I am trying to suggest that what may actually be leading to your sense of alienation, isolation, or depression is the lack of connection and intimacy that ministry brings, both for yourself and for the world around you. It is what we were made for and what Jesus has restored us and reconciled us for. Will you trust him? As this year moves forward, that is one of my hopes for us as a congregation, that we would be a people who would put our trust in God and the equipping and empowering of his Holy Spirit and step out in ministry to one another and to the world outside these walls so as to honor our role as stewards and image bearers and to really see the image of God in the stranger. My hope is that we would also put our trust in one another and so take the risk of being vulnerable with each other so that we can be ministered to as well. It will take patience, it'll take wisdom, but I think that in this we will be following God's will and plan for us and we will grow up together in him. Perhaps we can even work to undo some of the harms that we as a church have been involved and complicit in. Jesus is knocking at this very moment. He wants to come in and eat with us. He is the solution to our problem. Not only does he want to sit and eat, but he wants to raise us up to his throne. I love the encouragement that Daryl Johnson gives in his commentary on Revelation. This is what he says. He says, you may have never opened the door. You may be spiritually blind, broken, bankrupt, and ashamed. Blessed are you, blessed are you. The kingdom of heaven is yours, Jesus says in Matthew.
Or perhaps you've opened the doors some time ago, but shut it since, slowly but surely excluding him. Well, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Or maybe you have let him into your home, but some, home, some rooms are still closed to them, closed to Jesus. Friends, he stands before each of them and knocks. Will you let him in? Let's pray together before I give you a few questions. Heavenly Father, in our impatience, so often we try to take our own way in this world. We buy into the notion that we need to be faster and more efficient to keep up with the Joneses or even surpass the Joneses would be better. But God, you have actually called us to delight in your creation, to rest in your promises and trust in your way. God, we confess that we haven't done that. Father, we own the fact that we have contributed to the devastation and destruction that sin wrecks in this world. God, we confess that and we ask your forgiveness. At the same time, God, we have said yes to your son. And so we ask for the courage and the bravery and the boldness to step out in a life of spirit-empowered ministry. That we might work according to your purposes, that we might undo even some of the harm that we have contributed to. Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy, but we pray that, that we wouldn't take that as an opportunity to rest on our laurels, but recognize that you call us to more. You call us to real life in you. Father, you are knocking at our door. Would you give us the ears to hear, and would we answer you and trust and rest in you, we pray. In your son's name, in the powerful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Friends, here's some questions that you can ask one another and wrestle through as we go through the week. I want you to ask yourself, how am I this anyone behind the door? How and where am I impatient with God? How and where am I feeling alienated? Do you hear Jesus at the door? The handle's on the inside. What are you going to do? On the flip side, I also want you to think, who are the anyone's I know that I can minister to. Again, we are saved for ministry. That's what we were made and created for, to minister to one another. So who do you know that you can minister to? Maybe you don't know anyone you think. I would encourage you then to look for those you can minister to, to read the cultural room and understand that there are people who are hurting who need ministry. What does that look like? How can you do that? What does it look like for you to enter into prayer for those people right now? Who is the Spirit asking, or what is the Spirit asking for you to do for anyone? So, reflect inwardly and look outwardly as you wrestle with these questions. Friends, I want to leave you with this benediction, especially since restrictions have opened up, and maybe, just maybe, we'll see you in our door next Sunday. 
Friends, may the peace of the Lord Christ go with you, wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness, protect you through the storm, and may he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again into our door. God bless you, friends.